0: Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read...
1: I'm writing this from my mother's apartment.
0: It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story back What was the inspiration me? for the story? My story is called I Cigarettes. Now. What was the genesis? I, perhaps I used to be almost dependent be. on voice. I want to talk to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the conversation starts.
0: Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. On this episode of Off the Page, Madeline Curtis will read a short story. Madeline Curtis recently graduated from Stanford University with a degree in English. Her work has appeared in The Forge Literary Magazine, among others. She's currently pursuing an MFA in fiction at the University of Wisconsin-Madison.
1: I will be reading a story called Twister. Doc says it'll be the biggest twister of the season, maybe the biggest we've ever seen. So we pack up the van and hurtle off in search of its molten calamitous core. I'm sitting on the floor, origamied between crates of meteorological instruments and monstrous jugs of cherry Kool-Aid. Because someone has to sit on the floor, and I'm the smallest of our group, coming from a line of wraith-like men with slender hips and wrists like the stems of sunflowers. All I can see out the window is the sky, which is so uniformly blue I can't tell if we are going fast or slow. Doc is sitting on the bench in the back of the van, his belly straining against his Hawaiian shirt. On his computer, he tracks the gestational whirls of the weather, which twitch and reconfigure themselves against a panel of black. The rest of us are secretly afraid of Doc's computer. It seems to us a vortex of arcane knowledge, a box which may contain the twisters themselves, coiled like springs. Doc is the only one who can interpret its transmissions. If we ever knew Doc's real name, we have long forgotten it. He has always been our Doc, brain of our operation, enlightened practitioner of weather science. When the skies are clear, he simply sits in silence, smiling his perpetual smile as he watches the planes blur by. With a wife and three young daughters, a house with an above-ground pool, he insists that he has no reason to be unhappy. If we didn't know him to be a genius, we would presume him an idiot. Everyone has reasons to be unhappy. Anyone who believes otherwise is deluded and frankly pitiable. You, says Claire, jabbing me in the forehead with her pointer finger. She's sitting in the passenger seat next to Marty, with her wide, pale feet propped up on the dash. Her toenails are as thick and striated as oyster shells. More juice. I pour her a plastic cup of Kool-Aid, into which she empties one of the miniature airplane bottles of vodka she keeps in her jacket. She's been drinking since seven in the morning. She's gone blurry at the edges. This is our third April chasing twisters, Marty, Doc, and me. For two weeks each year, we soak up all our vacation days, crowd into the van, and enter our shadow lives. We leave New England, leave our dying city, we pass the baked bean factory, the funeral homes and methadone clinics, the brick one-stories with school buses resting in their driveways. We drive until the last April snow gives way first to forest, then to chalky interstate, and eventually to the amphitheater of the Open West. There's money in it, sure. For one shaky clip of a far-off twister, we pocket $100 apiece. Extra for footage of roofs sheared off of houses, cars blown like tin cans, or, God willing, herds of cattle hefted into the air. But the money isn't why we're here. Our weeks in the van are realer to us than our shitty jobs and shitty houses, our doomed marriages and estranged fathers. Each April, I am able to leave behind the house I share with my mother, who is plagued by visions of naked men with the heads of dogs and periodically tries to torch my bed while I'm asleep. The house is rancid with my mother's presence. My bedroom ceiling leaks in about 12 places, and each morning I wake up covered in a thin white slime, like plaster of Paris. In the shower, I scrub myself raw, but I can never quite rid myself of it, not until I'm back in the van. The van is an esoteric insect, an extraterrestrial vessel. It's crowned with a Goldbergian configuration of wires, antennae, and satellite dishes that sift through unseeable static signals. I am the videographer, Marty is the driver, and Doc is our weatherman. Claire doesn't serve any particular purpose in our crew. She only joined the team this year after she materialized at one of the monthly meetings of the Storm Chaser Society, which meets in the back room of the Cinemagic where I work, and of which Doc, Marty, and I are the only members. As far as we can tell, Claire wandered in by mistake, presumably taking our session for an AA meeting. She stayed out of what could only have been terminal loneliness. We knew from the beginning that she was crazy and an alcoholic and mean, But who were we to turn away another person who wanted, like us, to hurl herself into the mouths of tornadoes? The longer we look at Claire, the more nonsensical she becomes. She could be 19 or 30, with the mushroomy face of a barn owl and a tattoo across her sternum that reads, I bite. All we know about her, biographically, is that when she was 14, she fell in with some kind of cult, and only recently left, or was exiled. We are unclear on the particulars. We've been driving for hours, and there's no storm in sight. We are restless and sore. My knees are digging into my chin, and each time the van jolts over a pothole, my teeth clack together, hard. The only one of us who remains in good spirits is Doc, who is always in good spirits, who is a bottomless well of good spirits, and who is currently humming tunelessly and drumming his fingers against the window. Claire is growing mutinous. She says... We've had this sausage brigade on the yellow brick road for two days, and there hasn't been even a gust of wind. I don't think the wizard here is really a scientist. I'm not convinced he can even read. Doc laughs his high, hollow laugh. You got me there, he says. Ha ha, says Claire, in what we must admit is an uncanny Doc impression. Ha ha ha. Leave him alone, says Marty. What did he ever do to you? The air becomes oddly crystallized as it always does when Marty speaks, which isn't often. His eyes meet mine in the rearview mirror, and I flinch. Yes, sir, says Claire. Aye, aye, Van Master General. We worry about Marty. He doesn't have much going for him, with a middle school education and a job as a night guard at the baked bean factory. Then there's the misfortune of his genome. Shoulders egged by scoliosis, face like a neglected jack-o'-lantern. Not to mention his ex-wife f***ed him up. I mean f- him up, I mean stole his microwave and hit him with her car. Which is all to say we understand why Marty is the way he is, surly, taciturn, but we wish he would loosen his corset once in a while. It's becoming clear that there will be no twisters today, that it is time to stop for the night and hope tomorrow will be different. In the days to come, I know we will become numb to disappointment, to days past in near silence, pursuing storms that fail to materialize. But today, this letdown is enough to break our hearts. It is almost night. Here, when the sun sets, it does so all at once, as if someone has cut the string that holds it up. The sky fills with dark, and the stars spill out like shattered glass. Each night, the sight strikes me with a kind of mourning. I know there is no compartment in me that can hold something as boundless as this. Sometimes I fish out my camera to take a photo but I only ever capture a curtain of gray. Claire is biting her fingernails and spitting the clippings onto the floor at my feet. Pick them up, Max, she cackles. Put them in a locket, you pervert. A locket, wheezes Doc. When Doc laughs hard enough, his face goes plummy and taut, and his mouth contorts into what is by all appearances a soundless, wretched scream. Tears leak from beneath his glasses and wet, smacking sounds emit from somewhere deep in his throat. To watch seems indecent, so I just sit staring at my knees until he is finally done. Claire feigns disgust at Doc's loss of composure, but her mouth twitches with stifled smugness. Princess, she says to me, fairy boy. Marty veers onto the side of the road and kills the engine. We are jolted into stillness that rings like a sound. He says, I'm serious. Claire's face twists gruesomely. My apologies, your honor, she says. I didn't mean to offend. Would you like me to do ten Hail Marys, to kiss you on each of your fingers, to embrace you tenderly? If you touch me, says Marty, I will break your hand. He pulls back onto the interstate. We have grown somber. The only sound is the hollow rush of the road beneath the van. More juice commands Claire, and though her voice is hard, there is something like pleading in it. I pour her another cup of Kool-Aid, and she uncaps another miniature bottle of vodka, and the sky remains empty no matter how desperately I try to conjure twisters into it. Marty's hair is so short, I can see the rolls of fat on the back of his neck, the hook-shaped scar where his ex-wife struck him with a length of PVC pipe. Out here, we learn such things about each other. In the welcoming dark of the tent we pitch each night, I have told Marty the things I do not talk about. I have told him, and only him, about my mother's ex-boyfriend, the tyrant himself and the things he did to me in the airless dark of my childhood room. How, as he loomed over me, permanent as any mountain, I traced constellations into the plastic stars glued to my ceiling, and imagined myself into outer space. The sun has fully set, the plains sweep on for miles, and the sky is vacuous black, the emptiest emptiness I can imagine. I become an insubstantial thing, constructed from air itself, Ours is a lunar world, barren as a coma, in which a twister can spin itself from nothing, from the fibers of the sky. Once we have fully given up the search, we stop for a drink. The bar has a funereal atmosphere. The walls are black, the floor is black. There is more taxidermy here than we have ever seen in our lives. Moose heads wreathed in cobwebs, haggard foxes with cotton spilling from their mouths— Good evening, says the bartender in a vaguely European accent. Tonight is disco night. We play only the greatest hits. On the jukebox, one ABBA song winds down and another swells in its place. We order at the bar. Doc drinks only Cosmopolitans. Claire requests a vodka tonic. Marty and I coronas with wedges of lime. It's Thursday night. The bar is empty except the four of us and Robert De Niro. We look again. You are not mistaken, says Robert De Niro. It's truly me, Robert De Niro. We are speechless. Even Claire is suddenly bashful, purpling beneath her helmet of hair. Robert De Niro stirs his martini with a thin straw. He looks listless and morose. Mr. De Niro says, Doc, I am overcome. He extends his hand and Robert De Niro humbly demurs. What are you doing here, demands Claire, at once breathless and accusatory. I'm on tour, says Robert De Niro. He declines to provide any further explanation. Robert De Niro orders us all martinis, and we drink them even though none of us particularly like martinis. And Doc hardly drinks at all. Then we have another because Robert De Niro insists. Pretty soon, we're all getting along great. Robert De Niro is telling stories about the guys from The Godfather 2, and we're all laughing and joshing around. And Robert De Niro is winking and grinning his searing grin and Claire is sitting on his lap, pressing sloppy kisses against his cheek. Even Marty is having a good time. For what is perhaps the first time in all of the years I've known him, he's smiling. The expression is unpracticed and stiff, somehow more tragic than his usual gloom. Then Robert De Niro grows subdued. His shoulders wilt, his features knit into a tableau of perfect misery— He says, Today I read in a magazine that I was voted America's most authentic man. What an honor, says Doc, and well-deserved. It's no use. Robert De Niro has descended into a profound depression. Though we do not understand his malaise, we are overwhelmed with sorrow on his behalf. As of this moment, our sole aim in life is to lift his fallen spirits. I rest a hand on Robert De Niro's shoulder, My mother and I watch Goodfellas every year on her birthday, I say. It's her favorite movie. I suppose you want an autograph, says Robert De Niro, with an air of great tragedy. It's always for the mothers. My mother is insane, I say. Max, don't bring Robert down, says Doc. Can't you see you're hurting him? Robert is very sensitive, says Claire. Don't talk about your psycho mom. I'm very sensitive, says Robert De Niro. It's disco night the ball descends at exactly 11. Under the whirling lights, my friends are somehow abstracted. Their features don't fit together as they should. The only one who makes any sense is Robert De Niro, who is almost too in focus, as though in high definition. Are you lonely? Claire asks Robert De Niro. Her eyes have gone startlingly soft and kind in her dumpling face, whether from the martinis or from the presence of Robert De Niro, I can't tell. "'Of course I'm lonely,' says Robert De Niro. "'I'm not even a person. I'm an idea. I'm a human cypher. "'He's entering philosophical territory beyond our comprehension, but we don't let on. "'It's clear that he needs us to catch his drift. "'I thought you were wonderful in Taxi Driver,' says Doc tentatively. "'Such gravity. Robert De Niro drains the rest of his martini and flips over the glass, "'as if to trap an insect beneath. "'Enough of this,' he says. "'Let's party.' Robert De Niro supplies the Coke, and normally we wouldn't, but tonight we are all doing Coke, and everything is starting to go really fast, and all my friends look like clowny versions of themselves. Suddenly, everything is swell, and we are all standing in the parking lot, the wind whipping across the plains, the moon a flat disk pressed beneath the panes of the sky. Doc is talking about the Twisters. The Twisters, he pronounces, made me believe in God. What kind of a sicko God, says Claire. Doc merely smiles his vacant, affable smile. Beneath the full moon, Doc's bald head gleams like a pearl. It is positively radiating light, and I can hardly look at him. There is an eeriness to Doc that none of us noticed until now, but I can tell we're picking up on it all at once, and we're all spooked by him and his benign, inscrutable face, the eyes which are somehow always hidden behind his glasses. Who is Doc, anyway? We don't even know his real name. He may as well have crawled, fully formed, from the flute of a tornado. All those nights on the road, when Marty and I laid awake in the tent, telling each other everything we could think to tell each other, Doc was just a hole in the dark beside us, a warm, pulsating absence. He simply listened, absorbing our whispered words and storing them somewhere inside himself. Automatically, I take a step back from Doc, who, I've decided, is not a trustworthy person. Robert De Niro is beginning to skeeve us out. He's pacing in the parking lot, gesticulating wildly and ranting about things far too metaphysical for us to understand. We do not want to be here anymore. We wish that we could be anywhere else. There is no reality, says Robert De Niro. There is no you, no me. It doesn't matter who you think I am, I'm nobody. We're all made up of the same stuff, bones and brains and guts, and in the end, we're all going to disintegrate into dust. Do you get it? Do you understand? And it's only now we realize that this man isn't Robert De Niro. He's just a guy with big eyebrows and a tan. At first, we feel totally gypped and deflated. We had not realized how much our happiness had come to depend on having done coke with Robert De Niro. But now we are certain we will never be the same. But then we think, does it even matter that this so-called Robert De Niro isn't really Robert De Niro, but is instead a stranger with big eyebrows and a tan? Because in the end, isn't the real flesh-and-blood Robert De Niro just a stranger with big eyebrows and a tan, a man whose profession is pretending to be someone he isn't, and so, when you really think about it, isn't a man pretending to be Robert De Niro really the purest and most distilled form of Robert De Niro? a Robert De Niro realer than any physical, literal Robert De Niro. We look at each other, both questioning and answering, until we are satisfied. I have to make a call, says Robert De Niro, cryptically. Good night. I love you. God, I love you. God have mercy on us all. When Robert De Niro is gone, we are suddenly very cold, as if the manic heat of him had been insulating us against the threadbare chill of the night. We zip ourselves into our sleeping bags and lie on our backs in the parking lot. Eventually, Claire speaks. When I was little, she says, we lived in a big house on a hill. Every Sunday, my parents' friends would come over, all dressed up, and they would dance for hours until all their makeup sweated off their faces and all their perfume wore away, and they were like animals, like a pack of animals, and I was afraid of them. I used to hide in the coat closet. I knew that when my mother found me, she would haul me out in front of everybody and make me sing. There's an expansive silence. I can feel Marty and Doc breathing on either side of me. But the truth is, I loved it when she bade me sing. I just knew she wouldn't make me do it if I didn't hide from her first. I was a good singer. Once, I performed in front of the mayor. Sing something, I say, because it's what she wants me to say. That would turn you on, wouldn't it, she says, and laughs. Before long, Claire is tossing in her sleeping bag, and Doc is making little whimpering noises in his sleep. I can tell that Marty is awake. I know this even though I can't see him, the way one knows such things in the dark. I hear the deliberate unzipping of his sleeping bag, and I unzip my own, and we stand up together, He walks in front of me and I walk behind, and we do not look at each other until we've climbed into the van and shut the door behind us. This is not the first time, nor will it be the last. But when we return home, there will be no more nights like this, not until next April. The thing between me and Marty is umbilically tethered to this place. If we attempted to take it back with us, it would not survive this is not to say we haven't tried. Once, on the off-season, we met up at a bar where we avoided each other's eyes and tried to talk about politics, the weather. We went back to his apartment, turned off all the lights, and fumbled together in the dark, searching for something that was not there. Ultimately, we just wound up steeping in tormented silence. We could only think about the way the planes went white under the moon, the way we slept suspended in the womb of that world about the twisters, rising like great ungodly pillars from the quiet of the earth. When the season is over, Doc will return to his wife and daughters, to the lab where he studies the coded patterns of the weather. Marty will go back to his job at the baked bean factory, and Claire, I assume, will limp back to whatever dismal hole she came from. It is likely we will never see her again. I'll return to my mother, I'll comb her hair, help her into bed, and lock her door from the outside. I'll fall asleep to the drip of plaster. But right now, those other lives seem as small and fictitious as dioramas. It's easy to believe they don't exist. I wake on my back in the middle of the parking lot, hungover and tasting the storm in my mouth. Clouds churn in the sky, purple as wine. And a hot electric wind scours the plains. We shuck off our sleeping bags and pile into the van. We are careening out of the parking lot before the doors have fully shut. Marty is behind the wheel, and Doc is hunched over his computer, and I am on my knees, my face pressed to the window. The hairs on my arms prickle. My mouth floods with hot spit. We pass through a neighborhood that has materialized like a movie set from the dust. The wind is swooning the sparse trees like fishing poles and stripping the shingles from the bungalows. Hail clatters across the windshield like dice, and then there is the twister, the insatiable funnel of it, binding the earth to the sky. It glitters with flung metal and shards of glass. It peels the prairie from the earth, snatches discarded tires from the ditches on the sides of the road, consumes porch swings and flower pots. The sound, grinding, churning, is so deafening it ceases to be sound. Becomes only a physical, total pressure. I scramble for my camera. Through the viewfinder, the scene is as small and distant as a postcard, gated behind the grid of the lens. I focus on the fragment of Marty's face reflected in the rearview mirror. His long, straight eyelashes, the deep crease at the top of his nose. I've always found it difficult to look at him directly, but with all these panes of glass between us, it's almost easy. Marty sees me looking, and he looks back. Something in his expression makes me hurt in a deep, all-over way. We barrel on, approaching that unseeable barrier from which there will be no returning. This is the moment at which Marty should stop. Throw the van into reverse. But no one says anything. Instead, a silent contract solidifies between the four of us. We are washed with the serenity of the decided. Marty accelerates, plunging us forward into the deepening gray. Papers flatten against the windows of the van, and fence posts flick past like javelins. Then the van is plucked into the air like a yo-yo, and we are devoured by the twister. The storm seethes and boils outside, but within the van, everything is still. Marty is half-turned toward me. I am struck by the delicacy of his ear. I feel the substance of myself begin to unravel. I am flung from the van and into something far beyond it. I'm thinking about Robert De Niro, who in my mind is bound to the bar like a poltergeist and will disappear into the ether if the timbers of that old building were ever to give out. I'm seeing my childhood bedroom, the shadow of the tyrant pooling over me, but I am being pulled away and being yanked from under him as if by a hand, and he is clutching at my ankles, but I am already gone. All my life, I've wanted nothing more than this, to slingshot myself into a twister, to be absorbed into the sky. I want to remain in this pristine instant, to defer the inevitable impact, to trap the moment between my hands, To swallow it like the earth swallows the sun at night. And so I do it. I stop time. I bottle us inside the twister, where we are insulated from what lies outside. Here, we will wait until the world we know has been swept away. Until we are ready to resume living. Until I am ready to be let
0: go. Hi, Maddie. Uh, Thank you so much for being on this episode of Off the Page and sharing your fiction with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You and I have known each other for quite a while. I think you took a class with me in spring of 2017.
1: Yeah, my freshman year.
0: Freshman year. My freshman year as a teacher at Stanford. So a while ago, we've had a few classes since then. And of course, you also worked on Off the Page for quite a while. And I've been lucky enough to read a lot of your writing over the last few years this story is different from a lot of your other stories and may have sort of initiated a new phase in your writing or be a new thing you're exploring. Um, Could you just talk about where you got the inspiration for this piece?
1: As you were saying, this story is definitely a marked departure from everything I was writing up until that point. And honestly, I can't really remember where I got the inspiration for the story. I think I was reading a lot of Laurie Moore at the time, and I think I had just read People Like That Are The Only People Here, and for some reason that just unlocked this whole new voice in my head. It's kind of hard to explain, but I sat down and I wrote the Robert De Niro scene from this story, and I really had no idea where it came from. I hadn't been conscious of thinking about Robert De Niro at all in years, but it just came out, and it was very different from my usual writing style, which is quite painstaking, and also very autobiographically focused. I don't know, it kind of unfolded from there. I had been working on my Tornado Chaser story separately, and then I at some point decided to merge them and make that group of friends the group of friends who meets Robert De Niro in the bar.
0: Did it feel liberating to work in this way, to work in a less painstaking way? How did it feel different from writing your other stories?
1: Yeah, it felt very liberating. It was definitely less thought out. Like, it felt very intuitive and I was writing in this very specific voice, which doesn't sound all that much like the voice that's in my head, but I think to an extent is part of how I see the world. I was letting myself tap into more humor and just more casual diction and being more conversational with the reader. And I think because it's more conversational, it flowed a lot more easily than very methodical, Heavily textured third-person fiction, which is what I was generally writing, that you read a lot of in the first few years that we were working together.
0: And I also really love that fiction too. And and you published some of that work, and maybe it'll continue to work in that vein as well. But it was so interesting to me as your teacher to see you working in this different way. And I think I've said to you in the past that to me, this story reminds me a little bit of, I can hear Lori Moore, but I, it also reminds me of Dennis Johnson's stories from Jesus's Son, the voicey quality, the colloquial quality. Although the story is, for the most part, realist, a kind of dream logic, or really a feeling like the story is hard to, I mean, we're having a conversation about now, but hard to, hard to analyze, hard to summarize, right? It, it is about like the experience of it. You know, whenever I try to teach the Dennis Johnson story Emergency, I think it's so funny and so compelling. But then when I try to talk about it to students, it just it's like a snowflake. It just crumbles. I'm like really impalpable about it. So maybe my question then is like, when you write a story like this that is so driven by intuition and that is so voice oriented, what is the revision process like for that? Because then you do have to bring a certain amount of like logic mindedness to this material that is sort of improvisatory and logic resistant?
1: I mean, I'm a very heavy reviser, as you know from working with me. So I would say that the revision process for these stories is similarly pretty drastic where I go through and I mercilessly cut many many sentences and move things around and such but I do think compared to my other stories this one at least the plot experienced a lot less drastic change like the pieces kind of fit together better for me I think partly because it's a road trip story and those for me have always been easier to write because they're very linear you know like you're in this moving space you're moving towards something you've got stops along the way. So that's pretty easy to kind of hold on to as a narrative structure and doesn't need all that much pruning. I had them take a few more stops in the first draft and it was a lot more like they stopped at a couple more places and at a friend's house and There were some more things, but I wound up kind of cutting that sort of unnecessary stuff. So there was that level of revision. And then there was the sentence level of revision, which is, for me, where I really get stuck because I obsess over my sentences, and I choose every word very carefully, and I agonize over whether or not it was the right word or the right metaphor, and I can just read and revise sentences like that forever. So I did that a lot with this story, you know, like really thinking about each image and what I wanted it to say and how I wanted it to contribute to the general tone of the story and the general visual motifs I had, kind of nature imagery and wind imagery and kind of this emptiness that I really felt when I was writing the story of this like very barren, empty world with these people who were similarly kind of empty (laughs) and sad.
0: I think that's one of the most striking images uh, in the story to me is at the end of the first section when you write The planes sweep on for miles and the sky is vacuous black. The emptiness I can imagine. It becomes an insubstantial thing constructed from air itself. Ours is a lunar world barren as a coma in which a twister can spin itself from nothing, from the fibers of the sky. And And it feels to me like in this story you're doing a lot of a lot of the character building or a lot of the a lot of the narrative work is happening at the level of tone and style and image rather than exhaustive backstory. You know, we get like little glimmers of backstory to all these characters. And yet, what I end up feeling about them seems more connected to image and tonality than it is to any actual literal information I learn about them. And also, you know, it's funny you say about a road trip being linear. It is linear, but it's also like like in a road trip, anything can happen, right? You don't necessarily have to have the sense of causality, right? You can just stop in the bar and there's a Robert De Niro impersonator. It doesn't have to be prepared for in any way. So there can be this kind of wild spontaneity. When you look back at the story now, like what do you think is their investment in tornadoes? Like why tornado chasing? Why is that? What are they looking for from that collectively, this group?
1: I think they're kind of looking for a sort of self-destruction, you know, this like pursuing of this very dangerous phenomenon, a thing that most people would run the other way from. They're trying to throw themselves at. And I think it speaks to how dismal their lives are in a lot of ways and kind of who they are as people that their way of seeking escape from their lives is chasing death to an extent. And I think that's especially true for Max, the main character, is he just has this like really grim reality. And for him, it's kind of this way out you know, looking for this twister. And then in the end, he kind of sees it almost as this cocoon or this room, you know, this thing where it's hollow at the center and it has these walls. And when you're in it, you're safe. You know, the world kind of ceases to exist.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's the sense that I'm left with in the last scene, like the sense of chrysalis and and like preservation, like within this tornado, he is safe from the trauma and and turmoil of daily life did you always know that max and marty were going to be a couple i remember the first time i read the first the first draft i saw of the story that was such a surprise to me i don't know if it was a surprise for you
1: yeah i definitely didn't know it's one of those things i think because i wrote this story so intuitively i had them in the parking lot and then i had them sleeping in their sleeping bags and then suddenly like they were getting up and going into the van together and i was like What's happening? But I think once I did write that, it felt very right to me. And then it also guided how I revised the story as well, because going back, I had to kind of put in a little bit more foregrounding for that little moments of tension between the two of them or the way that max is always kind of attuned to what marty's doing that was something i struggled with so i was making it kind of a surprise but also like i don't want it to be an unwarranted surprise like i want it to feel right even if you didn't know it before
0: yeah i mean i think that's i think that's the huge challenge of revision in general, but I think especially with a story like this, needing to make these refinements and adjustments while still keeping that spontaneity and that unpremeditated quality. You know, there are some writers I've known, not too many, but a few who, from what they've said to me, really don't revise that much at all. You know, they write in a certain way that isn't very voice driven. And they try to channel it down on the page when they get the chance. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, they chuck it. You know, they don't really try to salvage stuff. Like, I actually think I read an interview with Anne Beattie where she said that, like, yeah, I have, like, three discarded stories for every story I've published. But they either kind of, like, come out or they don't. That's That's so different from how I work. I'm generally much more of the painstaking variety. But I so respect and admire that other kind of story can you describe maybe this is not possible but like can you describe what it feels like when you're in that place where it's just you're connected to the voice and you know you know when something's right and when something's wrong and it's just like is there like a zone that you can sort of access when you're writing
1: yeah definitely it feels awesome it's like a complete like everything makes sense like I kind of know where I'm going or I feel confident that I'm going somewhere, but I don't right now know where this is going, which is a very nice confidence to have in something that I don't have 98% of the time that I'm writing when I'm just like, I'm totally in the dark. I don't know what's happening, Um, but it feels really good when you kind of get in that zone and it's like all you can think about if you're not writing, you just want to get back to it. So it's pretty cool. And it's been happening to me more ever since I kind of let myself loosen up and write these kind of crazier stories of which I have like a pretty sizable folder on my computer now. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a high. It's kind of awesome.
0: (laughs) That's something I'm always trying to figure out. Like what are the conditions that will allow me or allow another person to like be free in that way? Cause like, yeah, it's like, it is a kind of high that you can just sort of touch by accident, sometimes, you know, stumbling along, you have a great day. But is there a way to like, make sure you have those kinds of great days often? Okay, my last question about the story is, did you always know from when you started it, that they were going to drive into the cyclone at the end?
1: I did not. But looking back, it kind of feels like it was the only thing that made sense. So I was kind of surprised at how long it took me to get there. I think originally I had them turn around, kind of they were approaching this moment of kind of destruction, and they decided as a group to kind of drive away from it, which is probably a more inspiring message, honestly. But I think with all of the buildup to this twister and the fact that for the first 13 pages, it doesn't appear at all, it kind of felt like you had to really interact with it at the end. But it did. I worried about it being too fantastical to have an entire van kind of flying in this twister. It's very like Wizard of Oz. But eventually I was like, well, none of this really makes sense. Kind of screw it.
0: It is very Wizard of Oz. Now that you say it, there's a reference to the yellow brick road. There's a woman and her three male companions. Robert De Niro is kind of like the wizard. A tornado. I mean, yeah, you're just missing a Toto.
1: It's one of those things i have this thing where i make really obvious references or symbolism and i don't notice it until afterward
0: well i you know i can understand that feeling but i also think that it's actually good that you don't notice stuff like that because i think that that's just a pernicious kind of perfectionism i think when you preemptively tell yourself oh don't do that it's too obvious you know i think like when you're drafting when you're exploring you have to give yourself permission to be obvious, to be in bad taste, to make mistakes, you know, to do all this stuff. Because sometimes that really obvious stuff can work. And I mean, you're not going to know if you don't let yourself really try it. Well, then maybe my last question, um, Maddie, is like where... So you are heading off to grad school. At the time this airs, you will be in grad school uh, getting your MFA yeah. at UW-Madison. What kind of plans do you have for those two years? What would you like to try or learn
1: i really try to come in with an open mind because i'm sure my writing's going to change a lot once i get there but i really want to write a bunch more short stories kind of fiddle around with the different forms i've been playing with especially recently i've written a whole bunch of new stories since i've been in quarantine that i would like to workshop and they're really weird they make twister look really normal actually maybe put together a collection of those and kind of be working on it I think I'm going to be workshopping 10-ish stories during my time at Madison. So that's a fair number for a collection. We'll see. Maybe I'll try and write something longer, but I'm really afraid of longer things.
0: Me too. You're gonna that's you're gonna become the Joy Williams of your generation, Maddie. I, I, <laughs> I can feel it.
1: I... <laughs> oh, I would be so happy. <laughs> Gosh. Right? Love Joy Williams.
0: That's the dream. Maddie, well. Thank you so much for being on Off the Page. Thank you for working on Off the Page for the last two... Has it been two years?
1: It's been two years. Two
0: years. And um, I look forward to continuing to follow your, your journey as a writer. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher LaBoa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin. Christina Ablaza and Ose Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.